Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you are joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the gospel according to Mark chapter four this morning. We will stand and read in a moment verses 21 through 34. I do kind of miss the days when you could hear the pages turning. Either you guys are lazy and don't have Bibles or you've got other moves. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? Beginning in verse 21, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. Also, he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we, shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all seeds of the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches, so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it, but without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Please be seated. The desire to... Pause and comment. The desire to write notes while I'm reading is sometimes over, overpowering. Spiritual, spreading spiritual knowledge. That's the title of this morning's consideration. And we'll go right to verse 21. Also, he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? Well, the spiritual light, of course. And he's giving us some do's and don'ts concerning shining the light of knowledge about God. That's what our consideration is. So he begins his lesson with a question. And it is, you know, you know, do you put light bulbs in just so you can hide them? Is, does that make any sense? Of course, the audience would be in total agreement with where this is going. Now, a lamp is actually, it's remarkable when you, when you think about it. A remarkable tool for overcoming darkness. It does not uh, do it without cost to itself. In other words, it does cost something. For a light to give light, resources are spent. It gives of itself. Now, in this case, he's speaking of a lamp. 
That would be one of those, um, say, a clay pot, for example, filled with oil and a twisted flax wick on top and lit. But that oil would be spent and the wick would be spent. It gives of itself to produce light. A candle is consumed to this day. Power plants exist. Spending resources. What goes into making a power plant? How much iron ore is necessary to produce the steel? What about the aggregate and the sand and the cement to make the concrete and the gasoline to get the trucks there and the tires? And all of these things, there's resources being spent to give life. And that is the case with us. We're going to give light to those in darkness, if we're going to bring spiritual knowledge of Christ to others, it's going to cost us something. We're going to have to spend ourselves. Paul said, I'm most gladly, most gladly will, is it for me to be spent for you. And I need to pause here and say, only reaching your family with the gospel really is not good enough. There are so many souls in darkness that can benefit from the light of Jesus Christ in an individual life, and hell knows it. And hell will do anything it can do to snuff out, to dim, to block that light. There be people beyond these walls in need of the gospel, in need of, sometimes they already have the gospel, but it is askew and they need us to, to tap it into place. Maybe by just our friendship and our smile and our kindness to them. Created light, of course, on the other hand, uh, uncreated light. I've just spoke about created light. Now, uncreated light, that's a different story. That is divine light. That light is not consumed. It comes from God. Revelation 21, verse 23, speaking of that place where we are going, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated. Then he says, the Lamb is its light. That's pretty powerful. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. How do you stop believing that he, or how do you not believe that he is God the Son? With what the scripture has to say about him. And that's why those who deny him as being divine will stand and answer for that denial. Regardless of how many other parts of Scripture they cherish, if they deny who he clearly has expressed himself to be, I wouldn't want to be them. Revelation 22, verse 5. There shall be no light there, of course, with the Lord after this life in the spiritual realm. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. So there's a contrast between created light that spends its resources, uses its energy, spends itself to bring light into dark places. And then there is, of course, that uncreated light. Now here he mentions, is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Well, they speak of our possessions, the basket does, and the bed, our comforts. Our possessions and our comforts can snuff out the light, our light, our individual ability to share Christ, the distribution of the light of the Lord that he gives us, that's supposed to be put on a lamp stand, not under our possessions and not snuffed out 
because of our comforts. Paul says this to the Romans. He's speaking about this distribution of light and this giving of the gospel, which he spent himself on, as I said, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. It's all about taking the knowledge of Christ that he has been given and putting it on a lampstand wherever he is. Because the world without that has no light, no spiritual light, not from heaven. He says here in verse 21, is it not to be set on a lampstand? That's a very simple question. It is to be placed where people can see it. That's the purpose. You cannot, to hoard the gospel is to not have the gospel. You've got the gospel. One, I think it was Harry Ironside, a preacher from, oh, almost, you know, 70, 80 years ago. I think it was Harry Ironside that said that uh, one of the marks of being born again, I'm paraphrasing, is the zeal to spread the gospel. You know, you question, am I, am I saved? Well, if you've got this desire to share Jesus Christ, because you care about the other person, I think that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is there also. In you, inside of you. Regardless of what little mistakes you make, regardless of what sins you commit. You know, again, you, Satan will magnify your sin in front of you to keep you from serving. Oh, I'd like to serve in the children's ministry. Or I'd like to be an usher. Or I'd like to serve in... But, you know, I'm just struggling here. Well, you're always going to be struggling here. It's part of the curse in this life. Now, of course, there are certain sins that are over the top and they have to be dealt with. But on average, we all struggle with something. I struggle with being so handsome all the time. It's such a curse and a blessing. <laughs> such a goofy world we live in. What would we do without humor? We'd all be like Mr. Spock. Pointy ears and all. All right, well, Back to this, many people, they hate and they resent the light of Jesus Christ in this world. And they don't even know why. So oftentimes they don't even know why. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. However, there are others that will be drawn to this light. And those are the ones that we will spend ourselves on. Those are the ones that the Lord will bring to us. So let's not help those who want to put the light of Christ out. Let us do as God would want us to do. Remaining in Christ means sharing the light. The light itself is a miracle. You really cannot explain it. You cannot make light dirty. It is uh, something that uh, we as lamp bearers accept and are eager to be uh, distributors of. Spiritual darkness is a tragedy. It should not be. And in darkness needs no help, does it not? Well, Satan will contribute to it to protect it. 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of that bad-breathed devil whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. 
To get that light off me. I don't want it. Now, people who come, they're forced to come to church maybe for whatever reason. They don't want to hear it. They, want, they can't wait to get out. Conviction of the Spirit upon them. The righteous are drinking it in. So yes, it's true. The Ten Commandments are true. The Sermon on the Mount is true. I can't do it, but so is the mercy of God. So is the kindness of God. So is this insistence of God to love me, to hold me, and to use me. To spend me. We admire when generals win wars, having sent so many young men to their deaths. How about when Christ is our general? Sends us off to be spent in death. Spending oneself to give others light. John chapter 9, Jesus said, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he said, Matthew 5, 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden unless they take those lights and cover them with their possessions and their comforts, their baskets and their beds. I think it was Alexander McLaren, another saint. When I say these guys from 70, 80 years ago, I mean, that's when they died. I mean, they're old guys. Uh, McLaren, in the days of the, the whalings and tall ships, he said, if you put a basket or a bed on a light, it's either going to put that light out or set that thing on fire. And that's what the martyrs have done. They put baskets and lights on them to snuff them out, and they set things ablaze. And we admire them for that. Verse 22 now, For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. You know, in the law of the leper, ten times in Leviticus 13, we hear uh, the phrase, uh, deeper than the skin. Well, this verse is deeper than the surface of superficial meaning. It's just going deeper. It's not mean all things come to light. You know, there are certain areas you don't want to come to light. That's why we wear clothes. That's why, you know, there are doors on bathrooms. There's not everything in that sense. But in the deeper sense, in the spiritual sense, in verse 23, when he says, if you have an ear to hear, you understand what I'm saying. He's, he makes that statement. Men without Christ tend to love darkness in this world, in this life. In some form, they do not, they want to bypass accountability to a sovereign God. Regardless of how holy and loving he may be, they want to bypass that judgment. We, on the other hand, will stand at the beam of seat of Christ, saying, go ahead, Lord, lay it on me, because we know him. We know his kindness. We know he's got this thing for mercy and grace at the same time. And it is abundant beyond, beyond being able to count. So Jesus said in John 3.19, This is the condemnation. This is the thing that messes you up. He says that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They're up to no good. They're looking to get around God to get what they want. And Jesus is saying, this stuff's going to be brought out. The time will come where it will come to the surface. I know we say, Lord, how about today? Right now. And uh, he, God doesn't ignore us. He just doesn't do what we say. <laughs> It's very simple. 
And so, Romans chapter 2, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. According to my gospel, says Paul. Christ is the judge. He is the righteous judge. I charge you, Timothy, to preach the word. And he says that the, the, the coming of the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, is sure to happen. Hebrews 4.13 there is, no, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He also says there that God is, in Christ, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So there's no, there's no hiding. And for those who believe, that just makes Jesus even sweeter. Because he's not, you know, again, David, well, let's contrast Solomon and David. I'll take Solomon first. Solomon just never really got it that God was more than king. David did. David understood the mercy of the Lord. He said, by your affliction, you've afflicted me and I've gotten stronger and I thank you for these things. I needed that. And so that 119th Psalm, just read through it. And you hear the voice of one who understands not, who not only understands God, but can't wait to love on God with each verse. And Solomon just um, never arrived at that understanding. He, again, he saw the sovereignty of God and not much more than that. Whereas David saw the sovereignty of God, but he saw the mercy and kindness. And so God has taken David's life and he says, look at this guy. Look at this psalmist, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Look what he did wrong. How dare you, says the preacher, then think that somehow your wrongs are going to disqualify you. They will if you, if you do not avail yourself of his mercy. But if you come to his throne, you too can dance before the ark with all your might. Verse 23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So there's the challenge and warning. Pay attention. That's what he is saying. He again is to repeat what we said last session. When he makes these statements, he's saying... I think you're smart enough to get it. Would you like me to say, I think you're too stupid to understand it? Christ says, I will not say that. I think you do get it. That's one of the judgments on the, those who reject him. Because they, they got it and they rejected him nonetheless. That's what the problem with the Pharisees. They couldn't deny his miracles. They could not deny his teachings. They could not deny his morality. But they rather have the things of the world than him. And so they understood. And Christ, the Christ rejectors refused him. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, looking back a few verses. So that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now, who in their right spiritual mind would hear that and say, Well, I don't want my sins forgiven, so I'm not turning. No one, especially if you're watching Christ do these things. You know, look, I'm, I'm on board. I'm with you. Peter tried. He tried to say, depart from me, for you are a holy man. And Jesus didn't even answer, really pretty much say, yeah, Peter, come and follow me. And he still does these things because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember that for those of you who think that the culture changes Christ. If Christ does not change the culture, that culture is doomed. And the world, the world, they don't want to hear it. Jesus, he uses the words of Isaiah. 
to say sinful people want to be blind in the face of the evidences I give them because their deeds are evil. This is the condemnation that has come into the world that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. God's word does not cave into those in conflict with his demands. If you say, well, I really like stealing things from people. God's not going to say, oh, do you? Oh, well, let me change the law. Because the culture wants the law changed. Everybody wants to steal. If all the men... Now, this is a gross picture. It's grotesque. But it makes the point. If all the men wanted to start wearing lipstick, don't expect Christ to be on board with you. But the culture's doing it. <laughs> Bad. Paul dealt with this. He talks about the effeminate men in Corinthians that were watching around Corinthians dressed like women. And he said, don't do that. God doesn't hate them for it. But he does not cave into what they're doing, not for one moment. If culture dictates morality, then who needs God? What does God then become? Look, I'll tell you what, God. You do, like I say, and stay out of my face. That's what they do when they come along and say the Bible's no longer relevant. When the Bible condemns murder, it's for those people back then. We today are more sophisticated than that. We drink frappuccinos outside round tables made of metal. Okay, I could just go on. So culture tries to make God's morals obsolete. How convenient for Satan. And Satan just eggs them on. Yes, yes. Tell them it's no longer a sin to do that because we've figured out better things than God. And, and if they don't like it, to get angry at the preacher. I never understood that. I never understood the value of killing the messenger. The message remains. I mean, you can take his life, the message's still there. The conviction's still there. The guilt, you're still guilty. You're still going to stand before him. God's not going to go away. Exodus 32, here's an example of the culture telling the righteous that God's law no longer counts. It's obsolete. Exodus 32, 19. This is when Moses is up on the mountain with God. And the people are down in the valley. And they decide, as for this Moses, we do not know. How about you, Aaron? Take this gold, these earrings and such, and make for us something to worship that we can see. So now they're creating God in the image that they want God created in. And Moses comes down and he sees this, and so it was. As soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot. You know, when Moses got bad, he killed a guy once for just, you know, not listening to, come on, guys, don't fight. And he kills the guy. Anyway, he is pretty mad because the people were just dancing away with their idea of God because God's revelation did not count. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you know why? Because there's nothing wrong with him. There's nothing to change. There's nothing to adjust. And any, any development that there is in our relationship to him has been mapped out in Scripture for us. There's a path. And we see the progression from what we call Old Testament law to New Testament grace because it's been mapped out for us. 
And we work within the confines of that, and it's good enough. And if you say it's not good enough for you, just remember it's good enough for a lot of others. You have no excuse. And so if God's word was to change with mankind's sin, then his commandments would be a joke. And this is the thing about his commandments, his light. They're for our benefit. They're for us, not for him. God's not going to wake up because he doesn't sleep or slumber, but he's not going to wake us. You know, I really feel good today because they're doing what I want them to do. I'm, I'm a better God today than I was yesterday when they weren't doing it. Now they're doing it. I can't believe this is marvelous. God's going to be God no matter what people do. It's for us. When he says, don't steal, don't gossip, don't do these things. It's for us to have a better life so that we can have those frappuccinos at the round tables outside. So the consequence, Isaiah Isaiah, 5, Isaiah is trying to reach his own people. He's saying, look, donkeys know their master, and you, can, you don't know your God. What? Come on, what's wrong with this? And so at one point he says, you know what? You're praying into hell. You're just marching into hell with a band. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 14. Therefore Sheol has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. That's the picture. That's a picture of a snake swallowing its prey. And then he says, their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. They're happy going to hell. That's the picture. He's saying, what is wrong with you people? Martin, you have this parade and you're being devoured. Why do you hate God's word? What is so bad about what God has to say to you? You come in church and you sing songs. Are your lips moving or your heart? Which one? They both should be moving together. In fact, if your lips aren't moving and your heart's moving, that's just as acceptable. But if it's just lip service, you are piling up against yourself a judgment you're not ready for. Isaiah's not finished. Speaking of the king of Babylon, he says, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. And the chief ones of the earth, it is raised up. From their thrones, all the kings of the nations. So he's paid this picture. Isaiah said, when, you, when it's time for you to go to hell, they're all going to celebrate your entry. Because he's here. Hip, hip, hooray. It's still hell. It's not like he's going into this resort. It's going to be horrific. And the prophet is trying to appeal to the people and saying, if you want to go to hell, if you insist on going, you will go. God will ratify your decision. God gets the last word. He gives the final blow. Because there is a consequence to rejecting his word. And therefore we shine the light and say, don't do it. Detour. Turn away from this path of destruction and come to the Lord. And we are hated for it. Verse 24, then he said to them, pardon me. I just Whenever I look and see my time timer's not going, we need a, like a church timer pusher. It's another ministry we're starting. It's like, pardon me, stupid, before you start speaking. Bink. Gosh. All right. We got another two hours. Anyway, verse 24. Well, even if I can't push the timer, I know what I'm talking about when it comes to heaven and hell. <laughs> These trivial things. Who's got time for them? Then he said to them, take heed what you hear. 
With the same measure you use it, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. Well, this is fair enough. Another warning. Your eyes and your ears are gateways. Pay attention to what you're listening to. What you're going to do with what you hear and you see. You're how we react to what we hear from God will either save our souls or damn our souls. There are many voices that speak into our ears in this life. We hear all sorts of things. Again, our teens or our young adults even, Satan would like me to not address you. He would like me to just pretend that all this goes over your head and you don't count. Because you might hear and you might understand and you might bow down to the Lord and you might stand up with courage and say, as for me, as for me, I will follow the Lord from my youth forward. I will not miss a chance to serve the Lord. Regardless of how I fail, regardless of what I hear, I will listen, I will understand what he has to say, so help me God. That's what we want. Because you will hear false words. You will hear foolish words. You will hear filthy words. You will hear fiendish words. Catch the alliteration, all those. Foolish, filthy, fiendish. But there are also faithful words. And the light and the power of those faithful words, they ought to check all that other stuff. They ought to filter out those things. And so Jesus says, with the same measure you use it, I'm in verse 24, it will be measured to you and to you who hear, more will be given. So let's let scripture comment on this one. 2 Corinthians 9. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So it's just a basic law. You do little, you get little. You do more, you get more. I mean, go join a gym and, and you know, just say, you know, you, you have the two-ounce dumbbells. I want to just stay with them. <laughs> You'll get weaker. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You know, let's put that in our... You think God is a joke? The joke's going to be on you and it won't be funny. That's what that means. God's not playing. That doesn't mean we should be terrorized by him. We joined him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. What happens if your flesh is sowing corruption, but your spirit is fighting it? You're a righteous soul. That's what. You're engaging the curse head on. That's what. What happens if your flesh is blatantly sinning, and there is no sword of the Lord in your heart, in your life. Then you will reap corruption. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this to the Christians who had lives just like ours. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not for nothing in the Lord. It's not a waste. Because God doesn't give you what you want. doesn't mean your life is a waste. And so he says again, immovable. How many of you are movable in the sense that you want to back away from Christ? You want to turn again to perdition? 
You can either be given something very special and see it for what it is and treat it that way and do something with it, or you can take you can just uh, become you know uh, an ingrate. You don't have to get burned. You, 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 can, you can do the burning to hell's agenda. You don't have to touch and taste those things. Anybody want a little sip of arsenic? I just want to taste. How about some anthrax? You know, we got that too. No, you say, I don't want the poison. I want the good stuff. Vanilla milkshakes. Not too thick. <laughs> With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. And that's what he says. And the scripture has addressed it in the three verses that I read. Verse 25. For, whatever, for whoever has, to him more will be given. And, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Has what? What, what is he talking about? Light. He's still on, on that subject of light. If you've got the light and you snuff it out, you lose. You don't go forward. You don't even stay where you are. You go backwards. You lose. You miss out. What happens if you have the light? You get stronger. Like people come to churches, Bible teaching churches. You write notes. What are you going to do with those notes? You're just going to storm away? I spent almost all my time... Checking notes, making notes, trying to get it in my head so that the word is mine. That I don't come up here and repeat to you something else, but it's mine. Others have contributed to this. Many others have contributed. That's why I have a large library. I want to hear what other men of God had to say. I do not want to bury my talent nor theirs. Benefit from that. And the person that wants to act in a vacuum when he has choices not to will suffer because of it. Even what he has will be taken from him. If you're non-responsive or careless, there's a consequence to that. It works out with everything. Just get in your car and don't gas it up again. Just don't drive where I drive. In the middle of the road there. The outcome would be darkness. And so we move to verse 26 and he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout. And grow, and he himself does not know how. Now we're, these verses 26 and 7 that I just took start speaking of spiritual life. We got through it light. Now it's the distribution of the life, which is in the seed. This is the style of God. The seed is the word of God. If we want to remain consistent to what has been taught in this chapter in Matthew and Mark 4.14... He says, the sower sows the words. Okay, we're going to keep that because there's been no reason to abandon it in, the, in its meaning. And Mark has put them together for us. And so here, when he talks about the seed, it is the word of God now. A law of life states that there can be no life without antecedent life. In other words, a dead piece of furniture cannot make a live piece of furniture. Something, you, you have to have life to create life. And this law stumps the evolutionist. They stubbornly cling to misfit theories. Anything than to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. At one point, if you remember when Carl Sagan, the pagan, was alive, 
He said, we're going to abandon evolution. We're going to look to the universe. Martians or something put us here. Anything but God. Anybody but, well, who put the Martians there? That would just expand. If, if there were Martians, just think what that would do to Major League Baseball. <laughs> We'd have more teams and, and less of these political statements, I'm sure. Martians wouldn't put up with that mess. <laughs> but then and again, they're green with envy. Well, like you saw one. <laughs> so, life, even spiritual life, it is a mystery. You can code it. You can DNA it. It is still a mystery. You can just keep saying to the sign, well, how does that happen? And after a point, he says, I don't know. He may get a lot of them right, but in the end, I don't know. Well, we know. It's the finger of God. He says, make it happen. Because that seed could just be a dead seed till he gives it life. Verse 28, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. So here, at this portion, he's confining his illustration to the surface. What people understand. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 goes deeper. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. There's more to it. There are deeper things. We accept these things. Progress with light and life is illustrated for us in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. You know, she's the woman of shattered romances. <laughs> it's almost comical see how Jesus handles her. It's magnificent. He's so gentle. But, he's, but he doesn't back down from truth, does he? So when she says, you know, my husband, he says, yeah, truth is you've had five of them. Count them, sister. One, two. And, and she's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. But he doesn't say, and therefore I condemn. No, he does not do that. He is there to win her, to bring her to life because of the light that comes from him. And so when she first meets him, what's the first, she first says to him, you're a Jew. What is a Jew talking to me? Because she's a Gentile. It gets better. After she starts hearing what he's got to say, she starts referring to him as sir. Well, sir, sir this and sir that. Three times she uses that phrase. Then in the end, no longer is it sir or a Jew or sir. Now he's a prophet. I perceive you are a prophet. And she tries to get the subject off of her. <laughs> to talk about religion, but not me. And finally, she confesses he is the Messiah. You see that progression? That's what Mark is saying here, or what the Lord is saying. The earth yields crops. That's for us to consume by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. There's this progression, as we just saw in the woman at the well. And more, verse 29. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts forth, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. There's the farmer's responsibility. We still have work to do by the sweat of your brow. Everything is the sweat of the brow. Or else you lose it. Very simple and very meaningful. Not just simple, it's meaningful. And if we depart from these basics, what happens? We make rookie mistakes. And nobody wants to do that. I don't want to make any mistakes, sophisticated or, or otherwise. I want to get everything right. And you've been noticing me do this for decades. <laughs> well, you just got one wrong there, brother. 
Verse 30. Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? He's like this, this teacher that's into his lesson. He says, like, okay, what are we going to picture this? He said, we, we lose the tone in the print unless we really look at it realistically. Christ was not a boring teacher. You would not have these multitudes coming out sitting for these lessons if he was boring. He drew them in, and we should do the same thing. I so miss, you know, as a pastor, I deal almost exclusively with Christians. I miss, not too much. <laughs> I don't want to be sent back yet. But I do miss being in the workplace, preaching the gospel. I do miss that most of the time, the people that I encountered knew nothing of the gospel. What they had was damaged goods, and I had a chance to set it right. Oh, where did you hear that? God helps those who help themselves. What do you mean by that? Where'd you get that from? Oh, when they won, whatever it was, just giving them the word, the scripture. Well, here at verse uh, 30 and 31 now, it is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, it is smaller than all the seeds on earth. Now, of course, he's speaking to them what they know of seeds. He's not going to magically go somewhere and bring another smaller seed in. See, there are other seeds. <laughs> this serves his purpose for his lesson. It would have been complicating the lesson otherwise. The mustard seed is so small you can hardly see it. If you sneeze with your hand open and it in your hand is gone. It's rather insignificant. But still, that tiny little seed has life in it. A brick does not. A large brick does not have life in it. But that tiny little seed, what makes it special is it has life. And it will grow when planted, and it will produce and provide things for life. It's, you know, this is true of all the things, all the seeds, but he's using this one for a reason. The point of the parable lies in the contrast of the size of the seed and the size of the plant. I mean, these mustard plants get 10 feet tall. That's just like me. I'm this small, insignificant little mustard seed. But inside me, because of the gospel, there's the potential for big life. There's enough life that the birds will come. There's space for them. We'll talk about the symbolic meaning in a, in a minute. But the size of the plant is really no longer interested in the size of the seed because it's, it's grown. Maybe you think you're insignificant. Maybe you think you're too small to be useful. Your Jesus Christ says that's not so. Jesus Christ says, remember the mustard seed so tiny. But you plant it, and it becomes big. Now, the kingdom may seem significant in the eyes of men. It certainly does in the world. So much so that they crucified our king. The kingdom was insignificant to them. Won't be when he returns, and it certainly won't be when they die and stand before him. Caiaphas and Annas, for example, they died eventually. Then what happened? They realized that Jesus Christ is Lord, the one whom they had something to do with cruci crucifying. So growth that is disproportionate to the seed is potential. And we all have it. Verse 32. He says, But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So the mature plant, as I mentioned, 
10 feet, if they can get it that big from that tiny seed. Uh, if we want to remain, let's just go to the Satan part first and get that out of the way. If we remain consistent to the symbol that he already mentioned in verse 15 of Mark 4, he says, Jesus does, these are the ones by the wayside, the seeds planted by the wayside, where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And he said, the birds come and take the seed, that is Satan. So if we see that the church gets so big that even the devil begins nesting in there, we understand, you see, from that little bit of life, things physical and things spiritual are both impacted. There's a dynamic. There are forces. There's kinetic energies. There's all of this spiritual stuff pushing and shoving, pressing into the kingdom we are. There's a lot of activity going on. In front of us and around us, visible and invisible. That is the point. And Satan is very alarmed by a church that preaches and teaches the word because of its potential to produce life, spiritual life based on the light. And incidentally, you can't have growth without sunlight. Light is essential for life. And everywhere the kingdom of God has gone, it has brought with it hospitals and schools, and truths, morality, ethics, decency, in comparison to so many others out there that have not brought these things, but above all, it's brought salvation. The preaching of the Word of God has abolished, in almost all the planet, cannibalism, not talking politics, child sacrifice, widow burning, which was common in parts of India, polygamy, slavery, a thousand other things. It's the preaching of the gospel that has changed these things. Christians practicing morality condemned the Roman Empire just by their morality. They didn't have to say a word. Just the fact that they refused to participate in what Rome wanted them to participate in condemned Rome. Things such as you know, infanticide, abortion, Abandoning infants, suicide. I mean, just think of the, you know, the Japanese code of Bushido. I mean, Christianity had something to do with stopping that stuff. Of course, there is the cruelty and the many other sin sins that go on around. And the Christians for 300 years after uh, Christ ascended into heaven in some form endured intermittent persecution. There's a book, Alvin Schmidt how Christianity changed the world, you might want to read that. Remember in China, you used to bind the feet of the, of the women? had <laughs> These little tiny cartoon feet like Mr. Magoo. And who thought of that? Christianity comes along and says, you know, this stuff is cruel. It is not kind. Verse 33, And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So the spiritual lessons now, his method of parable, teaching by parable, was effective. And parabolic illustration put in with that. Uh, the countless miracles that Christ did, and only about, you know, a couple of dozen or three dozen or so are recorded in the Gospels. The countless parables and stories that he had to have given, and only, again, about three dozen are given to us. That's why they're called the synoptic Gospels, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they just give you an overview of his life. John at the end says, look, it's just too much. He did so much stuff. <laughs> they just can't put it all into, into print. And so imagine the lessons, and yet they still did not grasp it, and I am encouraged by that. I don't say those foolish disciples. I say, well, if they struggled, if they struggled after hearing these things and seeing these things, and he still retained them as his disciples, then he's going to do the same for me. If you are unable to spread the word, shine the light, then you can support those who do. So there's no way out. There's no. There's always something for us to do as Christians. Next, Mark is going to say, okay, you've had the lesson, Bible reader. Now the test. And next session, he's going to put us in a boat in a storm and see how we do. Let's pray. Our Father... It is a pleasure to read your word. It is another thing to be challenged by it. And yet, uh, you have given us your spirit for these things, to be able to overcome uh, not only the flesh, but the world. And the day will come and we will stand before you in glory forever, world without end. No pain, no sorrow, no suffering. But for now, it's war, unfortunately. And yet, in the midst of this contest between your righteousness and the curse of sin, you are very much active, though invisible. If you have been listening online or here in the church, and the Spirit of God has been saying to you, why have you never belonged to me? If he is inviting you to become a Christian, to line up with Christ, then you must confess your sins. If, if you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I have broken your commandments, and I ask you to forgive me, and I come to you because no one else died for me, no one else is good enough to die for me and take my judgment upon himself to save me from the judgment to come because of the suffering of Christ. And so, Lord, if you would receive me as your own from this day forward, I would ask that you'd be not only my Savior, but also my Lord. I give my life to you. Now, if anyone has made that prayer this morning in sincerity, then honor it. So many of us have in the past, and so many are doing it now, and so many will do it. And now, Father, we commit these things into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.